What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smarter more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up folks? You dig that new intro? Yes, me too. Perfect. I'm Justin Kana. Thank you for joining me for another episode. This is episode 88. I have a couple of housekeeping notes here that I need to quickly lightning round go through just because some of this stuff has to be said to kind of keep you up to date. First of all, shout out to Tyler G, newest supporter on Patreon this month. Growing up, one of my best friends was named Tyler G. Different Tyler, same last initial. So uh, yeah, Tyler G, thanks for supporting my stuff. On another Patreon note, I'm going to literally be producing a truckload of content in the next month. I have a bunch of travel planned, and I'm going to kind of share a story as a roundabout way to give you this news. I had a moment when I was interviewing uh, Christopher Scott, who's the owner of Sue Design uh, down in Savannah, Georgia, for the podcast last week, and I basically ended the interview, but it was a remote interview. Um, so we, we, we kept the, the interview technically rolling as we were kind of chatting after the the main meat of the interview. And I brought up Martin Kastner, who of course owns Crucial Detail, very similar aesthetic to kind of some some of the stuff that Christopher Scott is doing. And he gave some really great insight on Martin Kastner and his business in general. And I think it's going to make a great piece of like bonus content for Patreon. So that's the announcement. The, 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 the content that's either behind the scenes or short vlogs where I kind of share stories or, or what have you, um, cut out versions of longer pieces of content. Um, that's all going to be Patreon exclusive content. And I'm really comfortable there as using it kind of like a surprise and delight kind of thing, as opposed to, uh, I only produce vlogs for Patreon kind of thing. Cause I know that a lot of people do that. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it, it's not necessarily like a promise. Like you're going to get a vlog every single month kind of thing, but it, it, it I, I know what it feels to make minimum wage. And I'm just as committed to the fact that I want the best of the best of my content to be for free so that anybody can have access. I also want to continue to grow. And the last thing that I want to do is put a paywall up for any of my content. So if you're on the fence, if anyone from anyone on Patreon from $1 to $50 gets access to any of this random surprise content that I'll be publishing whenever I have it. So stay tuned for that. And I hope that I can continue to kind of over index on the value that I can provide as a thank you for for your financial support on Patreon. So another podcast update. I kind of had this epiphany moment. Uh, I, I had so many times where I would, you know, agonize uh, about the podcast schedule. It's got to be alternating episodes kind of thing. One interview, one news, one interview, one news. And I started to think about like my favorite podcast that I listen to. And I don't get upset in any way if it's like a different format of an episode, right? So like I think about uh, Tim Ferriss's show, sometimes like he will literally have someone else host the podcast because he emailed questions to them and they're reading it. So it's like you barely even hear Tim in 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 the podcast or, or um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but you, you know what I mean. And so, 
you know, I'm just, when that happens, I'm just more or less excited that I get a new episode of that person's podcast. And you folks will have to let me know if you're super keen on the alternate cadence that I have going. If you like, and if I were to deviate from that, would it upset you? Please let me know. But um, again, very roundabout way to say that I'm basically going to publish episodes as they come. So if episode 106 and 107 are both new shows because I'm waiting on an interview to happen and episodes 136 through 138 are all interview shows, great. Then that like the reason that I want to do that is because I'm so okay with the cycle of news being the way that it is. And I find that I kind of hit critical mass of amount of news stories that I want to cover every two weeks. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, I, I, I will update the podcast every few weeks and consistency and hitting upload on a quality episode that I'm proud of every single Thursday is much more important, um, at least to me. Uh, so going forward, that's just a little bit of an announcement to, to share that yes, it will most likely stay in alternating format times, but like Two weeks ago, I had somebody cancel on an interview. We had to reschedule, and so that really kind of screwed up uh, the, my, my plan, and I don't want to be beholden to those kinds of things. So just just a heads up, if you get published two news stories and new news episodes in a row, don't freak out. And last up, I will continue to mention it and tease these sorts of things as they come up because I'm, you know, it's not in the intro anymore. Uh, the intro is new, so I, I need to kind of make it known that I pull for questions from you folks on my Instagram stories and on my Twitter thread whenever I have a new guest coming on. So, like, I'm going to publish one tomorrow because I'm interviewing my friend Julene on Wednesday. And so, um, either today, later today, or tomorrow, I will create polls on both of those. So Instagram stories will get the questions feature, and Twitter will get a thread for that person. Um, and yeah, if you want to follow me on any of those platforms, that's of course linked up in the description of wherever you're listening. Um, but yeah, I'm very, very excited to bring you so many of these really amazing conversations with interesting people. So just make sure you're following there to get your questions asked as I announce them. Okay, housekeeping over. Let's get into some headlines, shall we? And I'm calling these headlines, but this might actually make Make up a ton of this episode because it's just how it was. There was just a bunch of stories that I thought um, were great headline things that I didn't want to really want to dive that deep into, or it was like really interesting news. So yeah, let's get into it. Keeping on the news of Maymo, the th- Norwegian three Michelin starred restaurant in Oslo, the news broke this week that Chef Esben would be opening a new restaurant, not in Europe, but in China, which is crazy news. Yes, the restaurant doesn't have a name yet, but Esben assuredly said that he will have creative control, but not necessarily operational control of the new restaurant. He's got a gentleman by the name of Kevin Finch, who was uh, formerly the head chef at Atelier Kren to help them achieve three Michelin star status, and he will be running the new spot in China. China. It will be located in the Shenzhen, Shenzhen region, and it's going to be bankrolled by one of Esben's Norwegian investors, as well as two new Chinese investors. So those are going to be kind of like the four people that have a seat at the table. So Esben, the Norwegian investor, and then the two Chinese investors. As far as the food, Esben is saying, quote, we will use some Norwegian ingredients and techniques, some Chinese, but we are not here to show the Chinese how to cook their own food, end quote. And as far as my opinion goes here, it's difficult to know what kinds of conversations happened behind closed doors to lead to this kind of a decision. I feel like that's always really important context when you're talking about these kinds of collaborations, because yes, on paper, a lot of aspects make a lot of sense. Shenzhen is a huge uh, hub of tech in China. There's 20 million people there. The capital is real. And with capital comes disposable income. And that's one of the reasons why Maymo did so well in Oslo, right? Because there was disposable Norwegian income, mostly oil money. 
Right On the flip side, though, it's mainland China. This isn't like Noma going to Japan. The culture is different. He's going to be one of, if not the first Norwegian fine dining chef to expand to that area of the world. And being on the cutting edge comes with its own sets of risks. So from everything I know of Esben and the few guest chef dinners that I've worked with him, he's going to rely on what he does best as far as remarkable service and really technically sound and intricately plated food to kind of be the star of the show. And with China being a white space for a lot of Western chefs... I have no doubt he will win with this move. He kind of fizzled out any qualms I would have had with his statements in the article. I feel like if he was like, we're going to revolutionize Chinese cuisine, I would have kind of tilted my head to the side a little bit. But I'm going to continue to keep my eyes on this because if he does well, I think that provided there isn't some crazy like cyber war that happens in the next decade or so, more chefs will follow suit. And in the same way that we saw European chefs open restaurants in like Vegas and Australia, the same thing will happen with China just because of the economics and the globalization at play. Uh, Michael Lisconis, pastry chef slash culinary instructor. I know him from being the pastry chef at La Bernadette. Some of you might know him as being like a creative director or a teacher or an author or a speaker. He's got a lot of stuff on his resume, but he announced that he's opening a dessert bar. It's called Recolt. And if you, you're someone with a sweet tooth like mine, I'm sure you're also going to be pumped about this news. So their website right now is pretty bare bones. The header reads Recolt Dessert Bar serves contemporary American desserts with global influence. Our open kitchen provides guests an inviting atmosphere to observe the preparation and plating of delicate desserts before serving to the table. The plate is a blank canvas to become a medium upon which we build flavors, textures, and temperatures. Within this unique form of architecture, we employ seasonal ingredients, technique, science, and inspiration drawn from both tradition and innovation. Through dessert, we we strive to shape an experience and leave a lasting impression." End quote. So yes, it's going to be in New York City. Michael is going to stay in New York City. It's actually going to be open seven days a week from what their uh, menu says as well. And the hours were also interesting for me to see. It's open from as early as 7.30 a.m. to as late as 7.30 p.m. So they will have a 12-hour long service, question mark, or you can like come within different windows of time. But it's going to be fun to see how they play with different service times. Not that many people are looking to, you know, sit down at a counter and watch fancy desserts being plated at 9.15 a.m. So are they going to capitalize on more like the to-go, uh, have a coffee, sit down and, and, and eat a pastry? I don't know. But hey, it's New York. If you're a tourist and you can kind of swing that instead of doing something like breakfast at a normal traditional bagel and lox place, totally, you're probably going to do that. And with Will Goldfarb's uh, Chef Table Pastry episode kind of giving people insight to what a dessert counter tasting menu kind of thing looks like, it might actually have some potential because it's become a little bit more mainstream. There's actually a dessert bar uh, just down the road from me here in Seattle, and they intentionally stay open until like 2 a.m. because they know people are going to kind of get done with dinner. Maybe they were just leaving a friend's apartment from a dinner party, and they'll let you sit down and order a bottle of wine and and share an overpriced tart. It's kind of fun, right? But my point being here is that they aren't open during the breakfast hours, this place here in Seattle. Uh, So it'll be kind of cool to see how they evolve and change based on the consumer behavior. But man, Michael Lasconis, the dude is so talented. He he, he he he's so tapped into the why of pastry and his food and his flavor combinations are super clean and his plating is kind of second to none. I definitely put him in the same league as like Francisco Magoya and Will Goldfarb and Jordi Roca. They're all like crazy, crazy skilled. And so uh, it's 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 made its way on my on it's made its way onto my list to check out next time I'm in New York City and the site says coming soon. So we will just have to wait and see. 
Speaking of pastry chefs, Alex Stupak, the chef of the Empion Empire in New York City, came clean about an age-old problem that he's dealing with, and I think it's really important that we talk about it. I'm speaking about, uh, in, in speaking about legacy, uh, the subtitle of this article is, quote, the Empire Builder no longer wants to be known for only tacos and margaritas, end quote. And he's not the only one, right? David Chang didn't want to just be the ramen and pork buns guy. Rene Redzepi didn't want to be the fried reindeer moss guy. And with stories like Thomas Keller opening up a Oaxacan in inspired joint like we covered a few episodes ago, more and more chefs are coming to the realization that they just don't have to play in the boxes where they started. So I'm going to quote Alex Stupak uh, himself here, quote, I don't want to die a taco chef. I want to die a creative chef in terms of how I'm perceived. We have ideas and where do they go? When do they, when do they cease to make sense within the pigeonholes you've created? So you have to create a new thing, end quote. Another quick point that the uh, article highlights here, quote, looking forward, Stupak wants to highlight his various employees and their talents to further his restaurant group. Empion Midtown chef Duncan Grant, pastry chef Justin Binney, and cocktail director Noah Small are just some of the employees he'd like to spotlight. And he doesn't want them to feel like they're restricted to Mexican food either. End quote. And so this seems to kind of carry on the trend that we're seeing surface from multiple chefs who aren't necessarily romantically attached to any specific cuisine. And it's not that, that he isn't romantically attached, it's just they're able to kind of branch out from where they started. Uh, Alex Stupak is definitely the Mexican guy, but uh, it, it, he's kind of like one generation past Rick Bayless, at least in my mind. And from what I'm noticing, those chefs who have any sort of experience with modernist cuisine or restaurants that encourage them to think differently, as opposed to like the old school uh, rock and roll style kitchens, they continue to push the boundaries of what the traditional career path of a chef should look like. And it's really, really fascinating to follow it along. And the best part is Stupak, much like David Chang that we covered a few weeks ago, is leaving it up to his most tenured employees. So if you work your way up at like Empion Taqueria, but your family is Filipino and you want to explore that cuisine, you might be better off sticking with Alex Stupak's restaurant group and using their resources to fund your project. Which is, of course, way less risk of failure because you've got the initial foundation there. Uh, plus, it's a great endorsement under your belt for Alex Stupak to say that he digs your spot and like he supports what you're doing. And it runs right along the idea that I've been speaking a ton about lately that I think the, the era of the standalone chef isn't even going to hold a candle to these larger webs of like really talented professionals that are, it's only going to continue to grow in the years to come, right? So to play devil's advocate here and with, with, with most, tr most transactions that sound good too good to be true. I don't want everybody to think that, you know, they should hold out for their chef or their restaurateur to kind of like give them this kind of uh, place to jump out of, right? And, you know, maybe these people aren't getting equity. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a single digit percentage of ownership. If you work for him for 10 years and then you get uh, your own spot as an offer, maybe you actually don't own that much of the business. And, you know, maybe it's just enough to kind of have a seat at the table. But my biggest thing with all of this is to weigh the pros and cons for yourself. I don't want to tell you that there's one great way to win because there's clearly millions of ways to win. Because if your dream is to be the 100% owner of your own business and you're willing to take all the shit that goes along with that, this route isn't going to be right for you to have someone like Alex Stupak or David Chang kind of like constantly uh, on your shoulder telling you exactly what they want done or n not even that, but like uh, creeping on what you're doing. Like if you want that full freedom, this isn't going to be the right path for you and you're better off working for someone like Alex Stupak and then moving on to go do your own thing that you can have 100% ownership of. However, there is no shortage of people who could care less about the 
business side. They want their name attached to a successful project, and they want to have a reasonable amount of creative control in what happens in the day-to-day, and they could kind of care less about the year-end dividends or whatever percentage they own. And there's all sorts of levels in between that, right? Some people want 100%, some people only want 1%, right? But regardless of what those negotiated agreements are, folks, I'm going to hammer this into your head until this podcast disappears. Please get it in writing, whether it's a contract or, or however you draw it up in a way that can actually hold some legal footing. If you're going to get into business with anyone, make sure you get so much of it in writing as much as you can. There's no shortage of stories that we've covered here on the show of people that are getting completely steamrolled through not writing up a simple contract that, you know, kind of outlines everybody's expectations. And I'm super stoked to see new spots from Alex Stupak. Funny story, I think I've told this story before. I almost staged and asked to get a job for like four months at one of the original Empions in New York City. I kind of had to change a heart at the last minute, but it's a super inspiring story. Uh, Alex Stupak's story is really, really inspiring. Nick Kakonis, of course, co-owner of Alinea, tells the story of how he told Alex Stupak that it was a stupid idea to open a taco place, and he kind of just threw up a middle finger and did it anyways, and now look at where he's at. So with the right next couple of moves, he could potentially venture into the kind of all-time greats category, at least in New York City. So I'm going to continue to pay attention to what Alex Stupak is up to. A headline that I'm stoked to speak on because this was initially pitched to me in 2017, and here we are nearly two years later. Bonjwing Lee is hosting a series of dinners in Kansas City at the restaurant 1900 with the con- with conversation at the heart of it all. He feels as though certain charity dinners provide great opportunity for people to support a unique cause, especially if they're centered around you know an organization or a nonprofit, but they lack the amount of connection that can really in- encourage change on a specific issue. So the first dinner that he's going to be hosting is slated for January 26th, which is actually just coming up in a couple of days here. It will revolve around aquaculture, and it actually features the chef at the restaurant that I last worked at. So Christopher Hatuft of Lee's Firkit, he's also inviting uh, Magdalena Walhoff, who is almost a decade of experience in the fish farming industry. Those two are going to kind of be uh, leading the charge as far as like the menu, and they're also going to be hosting a panel, which I'm going to talk about in a second. So the tickets are $150 a person, and as of writing this part of the script, there are still tickets available. It's on their talk page, and probably the coolest part, like I mentioned, the panel that's going to be before the dinner. So that starts at 4 p.m. The dinner starts at 5 p.m., so they're going to basically have an hour or so of chatting, um, and it's free. So if you're in Kansas City... Uh, definitely make a stop by, at least meet my old chef. Uh, But don't fret if aquaculture isn't your big thing. Quote, in September, we will be hosting another Talking Food at 1900 event. Sarah Steffens, the chef of Dogwood Dogwood at Blackberry Farm, will be joined by Blackberry Farm's Master Gardener for a discussion on their amazing seed-saving programming and the importance of preserving traditional farming techniques, end quote. So that's a very, very uh, enticing offer. Again, I can't uh, recommend it enough. If you are in the Kansas City area and you want to go check it out, um, not being paid to say anything, I just want to give a shout out to you know my old chef and then a dear friend in a project that I, like I said, he pitched it to me when I moved back from Norway. He was it, it was an idea he's been trying to put into into place, and I'm really, really happy to see it come to fruition. So yeah. In a story that a few of you sent me, but I think because it had Alinea in the name, that's kind of where, where, where you sent it. Nick Konis made a public offer on Twitter that the Clemson Tigers, most notably known for not just winning the national championship, but also being invited to the White House to eat fast food provided by President Trump, could they, the, the Clemson Tigers could get a redemption meal of sorts and come eat at Alinea on Nick's dime. So his tweet reads, I could care 
care less about college football, but I'm personally inviting the Clemson Tigers team and coaches to Chicago to experience what an actual celebration dinner should be like. I'm not joking. Someone let them know what the Alinea Group does. It'll be worth it. End quote. And aside from the small bit of controversy about, you know, the NCAA players not being able to accept these quote-unquote gifts, I think this is another amazing example of context-fueled marketing at its finest, a signature move of Alinea and their whole group. So Alinea, for all its fame and being creative and experimental with its food, is also a powerhouse for its timing with its marketing stuff. And it's not all Grant either, which, again, is such a testament to this new era I'm trying to document where it's not all about the chef, right? So, Yes, Grant makes amazing food, but Nick is fearless and savvy and tactical, and he's a partner who knows how to use the media to his advantage. I mean, I think about that clear pumpkin pie that we talked about uh, going viral right around Thanksgiving last year, right? And everything about this offer to Clemson is so on brand, right? Being on the polar opposite ends of McDonald's as far as price goes, uh, preaching celebrating at Alinea as being kind of the pinnacle of celebrating, uh, Nick extending the offer, um, you know, in front of so many people and the amount of people that are also following the president and his antics also see that kind of stuff. It's just one of those perfect storm moments that's not going to be the last one that I think that we see from these guys. If there's any takeaway from you, if you have any access to posting social media for the business that you work at, this is kind of a lesson in textbook timing, marketing kind of relevant to the platform and building brand. And it was just really, really exciting to see. I know I don't cover a ton of political news on this show, but I just thought it was a really, really interesting uh, point. And shout out to everybody that sent me that along to cover. Uh, I'm going to try not to butcher the name, Kurzgesagt. Uh, everyone's favorite kind of bite-sized science explainy animation video channel on YouTube published a piece that I can finally shout out here on the podcast. I always watch their stuff, but uh, not all of it is always industry-related. So this one is not about black holes or quantum mechanics. This is about food, specifically organic versus conventionally farmed food and how one differs from the other. And it's ultimately asking the question, is organic food worth it? And I'm not supposed to encourage you to kind of leave this early in the show, but uh, they do a really good job of highlighting the facts and breaking down the arguments for both sides. So I will let them explain more if you go ahead and watch the video after this. I think it's a really good thing for you to do after. Um, I just think that as people who get these kinds of questions from guests sometimes, where it's like, if we put the word organic on something on our menu, does that mean that everything else is not organic? And is that better? Is that worse? Um, I just think that being able to continuously educate ourselves on these topics means that you know we should all be equipped with this kind of information so that when we get questions from guests or staff that we're training, we have answers to give. So definitely give it a watch as your next thing to listen to after this episode. A restaurant that we haven't spoken about since their chef swap, Cezanne, is back in the news for a more affordable tasting menu option. Quote, while Cezanne's new sibling restaurant, Angler, is making waves with his a la carte approach, chef slash owner Josh Skeen's three Michelin starred flagship is also sporting a new, more accessible option for diners, a fixed bar menu that's $148 for five courses rather than the full $298 menu served in the dining room. End quote. And you can actually get a wine pairing option to go with that for just $99, which at a total of $250 before tax, that might be the cheapest option I've seen to experience a quote unquote full meal at Cezanne since they have opened. So this experience is not only available at the six seat bar, but from the, what the article says, you can continue to add on supplemental courses and even order the rest of the tasting menu if you can manage to get a seat uh, at the at the bar. 
which would effectively, you know, kind of double your check in one way or another. But it sounds to me like an interesting kind of hack to get a seat at Cezanne if the dining room is sold out. So, you know, just make a reservation of the bar and say you want the full menu. Uh, it's kind of scumbaggy, but if you're only in San Francisco for two days and you really want to experience it and there's no other availability, from what the article said, it's definitely a possibility and it could be worth it if you really want to eat at Cezanne. And I'm not even going to speak on the claims that people think you're only getting half the experience by paying half the cost. You folks know how I feel about that, but I'd like to think that most people know that to not be true, especially at a place with Cezanne's caliber. It's only going to be five courses, but it's going to be really, really great product. The portions are going to be larger. You're going to get fed. But just from a financial perspective, I did some quick math here. If they can do two seatings a night at the six seat counter and they do that five nights a week, that's additional. That's an additional $10,000 revenue a week. That's an additional half a million dollars a year, which if they're writing their menus right, can make a huge difference with a restaurant like that. So to me, it's also a really great example of um, anchor pricing, which for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's like, you know, while everybody else is squeamishly kind of offering their most exclusive tasting menu at $150 a person, Cezanne's most expensive menu on their talk page is $500 a person for a truffle dinner. So when you see $150 next to $500, you're like, man, that's a steal, right? Personally, though, when I go to San Francisco next month, I'm really looking to eat at Angler if I can manage to get a seat. Um, we'll see if that's in the cards or not. I, I I have eaten at Cezanne before back when I was living in California. Amazing meal. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a really cool thing to see um, them experimenting with different sorts of menus and consumer behavior. So that is going to do it for today's headlines. I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, today's beverage, which you've probably been staring at the whole time, um, I had McDonald's for lunch today. And so I got a little, little Sprite action here. And this is going to be a really interesting ASMR experience. Maybe not. It didn't do the little... Yeah, maybe. That's enough ASMR. Um, and there's Sprite in there. I don't think I, I said that already. So, main stories time. What do we have first? It is an article titled, Restaurant Industry Pros Embrace the Side Hustle. And oh man, can I relate to the side hustle life. But don't listen to me. Listen to this lady that they interviewed, Naomi Pomeroy of Portland. She says, quote, The public per perception is that chefs should just be chefs is kind of annoying. Maybe some chefs only cook, but I would imagine a lot of chefs are multi-talented. End quote. And the article gives so many examples of these side hustles. So Pomeroy opened a flower shop. Danny Bowian once walked in a fashion show. And they give some other examples of people that design vans. Some people got into woodworking. The list goes on. The real insight that I hope to convey with you in this article is twofold, right? So one... There are so many tangential arms to cooking. In other words, the article references this hand-thrown Japanese pottery uh, person that does this on their, their day off. It's not just for, you know, 48-year-old Janet in her fancy house ma mansion up in the hills, right? Sushi chefs also probably enjoy your ceramics, so use that to your advantage. And it goes the other way, too, right? If you make aprons for your entire restaurant staff, someone outside of the restaurant might also enjoy your work. And some of you might be like, dude... I work 13 hours a day. The last thing I want to think about is a side hustle. And this lady that they interviewed has a rebuttal for that. She says, quote, I really feel like the cooking world can be way too all-absorbing to its detriment. Uh, she says nothing. Uh, she says that the, it's an antiquated idea that chefs should be hardcore, and it doesn't allow them room to do anything other than eat, sleep, and breathe cooking. "Quote: do, Doing something else outside of the box shouldn't mean that you're not as hardcore. It should mean that you're trying to diversify your brain." And she notes making your cooking better as well. 
end quote. And in addition to the few positive tweets that I've seen about this article, I think it's really a sign of the times, right? Referencing referencing back to that Alex Stupak piece, we're living in an era now where, yes, your first foray into business can be a successful 40-seat taqueria, but then you now have the option to expand into cutting boards or consumer packaged goods. And with the internet and globalization and the speed at which you can build a business going direct to consumer, you can do all of that right? Like the taqueria and the cutting board thing and the sauce on a grocery store shelf. You can do all of that in five years, which would have previously taken 20 years back in like the 70s or 80s, right? So as someone who started a side hustle when I was managing a kitchen, I started to do kind of travel vlogs and you folks know the Dish of the Day videos and kind of really nail down this skill of media production for myself. Uh, and then I, I really moved into a full-time freelancer when I moved to Seattle. I've got a few tips here that I want to share because, hey, some of you might might want to get a side hustle of your very own going forward, especially after getting a little bit of this inspiration. Um, and the first tip I have is to not give up the steak. What does that mean? There's this really insightful idea that some people are good with kind of like a full plate of side dishes. You've got your broccoli, your potato, your glazed carrots, maybe a salad, and you can eat all of that and you're going to be good, Right. But what happens when two of those, two or three of those side dishes aren't great, right? You're going to go hungry. So the advice is this, get a steak source of income, right? Maybe that's a job where you do 40 hours a week instead of your normal 60 hours at a restaurant, and then you use those extra 20 hours to build up a side business. If your bare necessities are taken care of, it prevents you from making silly short-term economic decisions on your side hustle, which eventually might turn it into something that you hate because you're doing it just for the money, right? So I personally worked on a food truck three to four days a week, and that was income enough to kind of cover my rent and most of my uh, you know basic expenses, and that freed me up to focus on building out this YouTube channel. So um, tip number two that I have on side hustles is to focus on one at a time. So going back to that side dishes example, yes, some people have so many sort like some people have so many sources of income that they don't need a steak, right? And you, maybe you'll get there at that point. But to tie this into cooking as much as possible, picture kind of getting thrown on the line in a new restaurant and getting asked to make all the dishes at the same time. Even if you're really, really skilled, you're probably either going to fuck up a few times or even get so frustrated that you give up. So if you flip it, think about how most restaurants actually operate. You learn canapé station with just a few dishes and then you go to garmage and so on and you might want to have your own knife sheath company and do protein bars right like I don't I, I'm not gonna tell you what to do but if you try and juggle both at the same time making knife sheaths and doing protein bars you're probably gonna be more set up for failure so build the knife sheath company and then ask questions along the way about protein bars I'm not saying like totally uh, say no and stop doing it but don't fall in the trap of doing both uh, tip number three I have is to scratch your own itch. I think about so many products or services where the founder story includes that quote of, you know, I knew there had to be a better way kind of thing, right? And that's how my apron came to be, right? And I worked in restaurants for so long with really uncomfortable aprons that never seemed to stay put around my waist, so I made mine. And is it to market yet? No, because I'm focusing on this content part right now. Again, heeding my own advice. But my point being, when you scratch your own itch, you're able to have at least an audience of one that loves it. And because you have empathy for people like you, marketing that idea is super easy. Okay, so enough business chat. Do you have a side hustle? I guess that's my first question of the day. Maybe it's just an idea for one and you're you're waiting to launch it, but you just don't feel ready yet. Let me know down low in the comments or tweet at me about side hustles. I would love to get to a point where you folks can use uh, me as a platform to get your ideas out there. So I figure it's the least I can do for you giving me your attention. 
Okay, deep dive incoming. The world's 50 best delivered a bombshell of a headline this week, and a bunch of you reached out and asked me to cover it, and we 100% have to talk about it. So the last time we covered the awards and the committee itself of San Pellegrino's world 50 best list, they pledged to do better and be more inclusive and more transparent and ultimately fizzle out a bunch of these this bad press that kind of circulates around the list every single time it comes out. And a really, really shocking development, though, and I'm going to read this from the Eater piece, quote, the world's 50 best restaurants announced today that former number one winners will make up a group they're calling best of the best. Not only will the restaurants in this category no longer be able to earn the title of best restaurant in the world, but they won't be eligible for placement on the annual list of 50 restaurants at all, end quote. And the article continues to mention the fact that since the list debuted, only seven restaurants have held that number one spot, and most of them did so for multiple years at a time. Speaking of number one, Noma is Noma 2.0 is in a new space, so they're technically a new restaurant, and in many ways, um, they're still eligible to be on this list, so people will be able to vote for the new Noma um, for 2019's list, which is very, very interesting, and we're going to stay tuned for that. Um, what I loved about this piece in particular is that a few of you... I, I shared it on Twitter, and then a couple of you kind of like reached out and shared your opinions early. So I'm going to share some of your folks' thoughts, and then I'm going to share my own. Um, At Chad Kubanoff on Twitter says, I feel like this article was saying that they are wanting the diners to look towards new restaurant styles and get away from the fine dining side of things. That would be the beginning of the end for this list for me. I really don't like this push to try to compare non-fine dining restaurants to fine dining. Fine dining is the pinnacle of cooking. You have a chef and their team all working towards the goal of pushing the cuisine forward. You can't compare that to a vendor selling tacos. There's also a gentleman at Rocker Knack on Twitter saying, quote, interesting, hella mixed feelings about it, though, end quote. And on a kind of semi-related note, Chef Arturon on Instagram in talking about the um, equality side of things says, quote, my opinion is that I don't look for male or female reviews. I look for reviews. I don't go out to eat because the chef is male or female. I go because I want good food, end quote. So, My opinion, let's unpack this a little. As I have said before, what a lot of these lists are trading on is brand, right? Michelin gets a ton of flack for their awards not being consistent from country to country. New York Times and San Francisco are always getting shit for their critics' opinions one way or another. And there comes a point where you kind of have to decide as someone that represents one of these brands or works with at one of these publications, is is it going to be feedback that we hear or feedback that we listen to? Does that make sense? So it's like, Yes, Michelin knows that it's inconsistent in Hong Kong as compared to the Bay Area, but they hear it, but they're not going to listen to it and kind of like change up what they're doing. They know what they're doing, right? And this, to me, is going to be a make or break moment for the list. For all the controversy that World's 50 Best had, the number one spot, hell, even the top 10 or the top 25 has always been a striving and motivating factor for certain chefs all over the world. And as far as my research has shown me, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, no chef has given back their spot on the list or like refused to be a part of the ranking, right? Chefs have given back Michelin stars. They've refused to serve certain critics in the past, but not the world's 50 best. They've capitalized on the fact that people love lists and they love their rankings and they love things that are constantly changing too. It's it's competitive, it's on trend, it's global, it's exclusive. And for all the people applauding this change, I'm intensely concerned to see if this was a shot in the foot or not for world's 50 best. Is it going to come back and bite them in the ass later? 
So to avoid beating a dead horse, I'm going to say this very briefly. You or I could come up with a list of restaurants tomorrow. Our Justin and Jack's list of the best restaurants in the world. And it would not catch on, right? And that's because you have to have something, you have to produce something that one or both parties care about. So the first party is the guest and the second party is the restaurants. So if you can get the the restaurants to care about it, awesome. That's like, you know, the Bocuse door or having another famous chef go eat at your restaurant. That kind of stuff gets you respect amongst chefs and restaurants. The guests don't really care that Alain Ducasse came to eat at your restaurant, but maybe they do. But if you can get a guest to care about it, right, that's even, that's that's also awesome, right? So that's things like an Eater article or Bon Appetit or a blogger coming to eat at your place and posting about it. Yes, you might see more business and the guests might be more stoked to eat there, but it's not something that you're going to lead with when you meet a new chef. You're going to be like, hey, did you see Foodie Supreme 67 on Instagram said I was best new restaurant, right? Like chefs don't talk about that kind of stuff. So um, the gold, though, is found when you can get both the guest and the restaurant to care about the the content you're producing and ranking, right? So those include the New York Times and a few other larger newspapers and the Michelin Guide, and then of course, World's 50 Best. Those are like, at least in my opinion, the three places where the chefs care and the guests care. How many people say, oh, I went to go eat at the number four restaurant in the world, right? So um, what I fear though is with this change, chefs might not care anymore because you've really, really kind of change the rules of the game. And what could be worse is it, it'll be like a death sentence for that number one spot, if, if that's at least how they feel about it. Because people will intentionally arm wrestle for that number two, three, and four spot, right? It's such a sad thing to see. Like, say, for example, the Golden State Warriors win a championship. Oops, sorry, you guys won this year. You can't compete with this team name again, right? Like, how does that make sense? And you get out on a best of the best list? Why? right? Like the best part about the annual award ceremony to me is like, oh, you changed your menu format, your chef de cuisine changed, there was a sudden influx of tourists, that probably really increases your chances of getting that number one spot. And the worst point, and uh, this makes me so frustrated, you're inel- if you get on the best of the best list, you are ineligible from getting voted onto the list after you become best of the best. So Let's go ahead and talk about those um, seven restaurants who will not be on the list anymore. El Bouilly, closed. French Laundry, uh, Fat Duck, Nanoma's original location, Cellar de Con Roca, Austria Francescana, and 11 Madison Park are all ineligible now for, uh, you know, kind of being part of the number one spot anymore. And this part leaves me a little indifferent, right? So I'm taking French Laundry as an example. Amazing restaurant. It just got renovated, which maybe they had as part of the plan to kind of like elevate the restaurant standings on this list, but nope, you can't get on the list anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's been no under the radar thing. Thomas Keller's fine dining restaurants have been constantly falling on the list since I would say like 2014, which might totally change the name of the game in some of these places. They can literally game the system and be like, we're going to shoot for number one. We're going to go super hard for three years. And if we make it, we're all set. And then it certainly prevents kind of like the slow decline on a, on a public list uh, vision of a, of a place, right? Like, I can't, I can't even tell you the amount of text messages I got where it's like, hey, per se was 27 last year. Now it's number 42. And it's just continuing, continually going down. Like, maybe there's some reverse psychology. And like, if you get number one, you don't have to watch yourself go down after the years. But it still prevents that feeling 
that a lot of these restaurants are going for. But still, the chain this changes the rules, and I'm nervous, and I'm excited, and I'm a little bit hesitant to see where this goes because they just opened up a massive door for someone else to swoop in and publish their own list that allows for repeat championship wins. I mean, just think about it, right? Say you're a voter for the world's 50 best. You get one trip to the Bay Area every single year, and you post all your meals on social media. If you have theoretically, 150,000 people following you. You're a successful food blogger. The fact that you ate at Saison and Bennu and Meadowood are probably clear indications on where your votes are going for the year, right? But at the same time, those restaurants get a huge hit of free marketing by you posting about them, which also probably helps drive a little bit of business. And if you're on the best of the best list, there's now such a totally slim chance that the representative from South Africa is going to come to the Bay Area and eat at the French Laundry because they already got number one. There's no point. They can't get ranked again, right? So why waste your time? Why waste that meal? And I say waste and you know what I mean. Um, because they're already on the list. So there goes that Instagram story or there goes that blog post that could have led to a little bit more business. And, you know, there's no use voting for them. And they already got number one. So it's just a stupid rule. And I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens. And listen, I could be 100% wrong on this between things like their pledge to include more diversity and be a little bit more transparent and using this new list as a way of becoming more relevant. Maybe this catapults them into being even more successful. Maybe they use things like their scholarship opportunities and send kids to the best of the best restaurants to work at. Or maybe they start doing collaboration dinners between certain people that are on the best of the best list. And then that drives even more uh, hype and people go crazy for that. But in the ways that history repeats itself and the way that I see chefs thinking about awards and the way that consumer behavior is going and from all the other reasons that I just ranted on, I have a really hard time believing that this is a good choice. And with most of these decisions, time will tell. I believe these awards are announced around like April or May. So I'm curious to kind of see what happens. I always really, really appreciate your thoughts as well. So please keep tweeting me these stories and I will continue to feature your opinions here as well. A really fun article for those business and number geeks, Grub Street uh, published a piece called, quote, Market Price 2.0, how surge pricing became the restaurant's scariest and possibly smartest new idea. End quote. And for me, it was a great read, as with most of these articles. Um, some of it is best left to you for yourself and your own reading. I always have that stuff linked up in the show notes for your convenience, but a couple of cool insights that I got from this article. Uh, so here's the problem, right? Costs are rising, minimum wage is rising, rent is rising, ingredient costs are rising, and it's not really in your control as a restaurant to say where people go out to eat. But what you can control is how much you're charging for what you're serving. So this idea of surge pricing came about, and it's a little bit of a misnomer because when you think surge pricing, you think something is expensive. When it becomes busy, it becomes more expensive, right? And because it's actually, what, what they're actually talking about in this article is the idea of discounting prices during slow periods and then keeping the popular times at full price is essentially what it's talking about. So the article gives some really great examples of ideas that were paid to play, you know, that that idea of, of, of slipping the maitre d' of Benjamin to kind of get a table kind of thing. Uh, this is, they talk about apps like Table 8 and Shout and Zerview. Um, they all busted because they, they, they're basically saying in the article that people don't want to pay $200 to get a reservation at Bennu, Right. They just want to get a restaurant fair and square or know someone and they don't want to pay because I don't know. I don't, I honestly don't know why they, why they failed because in theory they should have worked. And some of these places weren't $200. They were like, you put $20 down and they will guarantee you a seat kind of thing. Um, 
and you know open table had premium reservations that didn't go great even resi that's the way that they started their business and then they pivoted to be a free platform but anyways the point being the guests don't want to pay more and restaurants don't want to charge more but it's just got to happen to be sustainable so they give a few apps like feedback and taste bud as examples of uh city specific apps that are doing this kind of percentage or dollar off discounts at peak t- at off peak times and a lot of restaurants that offer discounts are usually like 10 to 20 percent at those not prime times, at least those are the ones that they cover where it's not like a happy hour. It's just like, well, Wednesday, if you come for dinner at 6 p.m., will probably the 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 menu will probably be a little bit cheaper. And you and I have seen it. Um we I, I've maybe covered this example before, but it talks about that really funny time that most of us can remember and it's the idea that the bread and butter is free when you go out to eat. And you and I have seen it the, these trendy restaurants where the bread and butter service is like $7, it's house made, sometimes from a bakery down the road that sells to the restaurant wholesale, but the fact of the matter is where there's financial pressure all of these components kind of get their time under the microscope. And if the bread and butter has to go and we have to charge the customer for the bread and butter, that's what's going to happen. And as much as it sucks to hear about, you know, lack of healthcare or people that have to commute across the city without reimbursement, these are other costs that have to be told no to kind of cut out things like the chocolates at the end of the meal, right? And a statement that I can't take credit for because I want to reference the airlines, um, and that was made by the article itself, but I think about that, right? I'm traveling a ton next month, and I used to only go, like, this only used to be with shitty airlines like Spirit, uh, but even now Delta and American have decided to do these crazy, like, uber basic economy tickets where they'll charge you, like, $35 to check a bag and $20 to book a seat, and you're just better off getting the next class up, but, you know, they want to nickel and dime you, which is crazy, but, you know, and, and I I understand it because if you're a super bare bones traveler, you can get on a plane for cheap as long as you aren't wanting to have any of those other basics. But with restaurants, I think it's going to shockingly turn out exactly the same. If you're willing to go wherever is cheapest and order whatever they've got discounted on the menu, you can get in and out for relatively affordably because technology allows that kind of information to be put out there from restaurant to customer. With some of these apps, I downloaded one of them and it had service in Austin and it was like, hey, this Mexican place down the road has 20% off right now. And previously, you would have had to call the restaurant to get that kind of information. And you, as a consumer, you don't want to do that. You don't want to call around town to kind of like see where you're going to get the discount. But if your phone can tell you, I think it's a really, really interesting possibility. But what I find funny, though, and what I look forward to seeing with restaurants is how many people get excited about, you know, with, with, with the amount of people that got excited about failing flight costs, there's a growing number of people who will literally just say with these restaurants, stop nickel and diming me and just give me a seat with the amenities that I want and the price that's advertised. Right. And if the trend is going to flow this way, it's only a matter of time before it ebbs in the other direction and restaurants champion something like a pre fee feature of the experience and you pay like $24 a person and that includes things like your reservation and bread service and minardies and gratuity and valet and then that deposit secures your spot and also subsidizes all these costs for the restaurant. Again, just like weird startup things in my brain, like if a restaurant were to put that cost on their reservation site where it's like if you book a table you got to pay $24 or $19 or $36. I mean if you're going to be spending 200 bucks in that meal anyways, that's really not that big of a deal and then maybe you don't have to worry about tipping at the end. Maybe you don't have to order bread service off the menu and feel like you're getting scammed, not scammed, but like like I said, nickel and dimed out of your experience. 
would you would you hop on that train? I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. And the funniest part is you're like with so much of this stuff, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. Right. And the same the same people that will rant and rave about a ninety five dollar menu will be totally fine going out for 60 bucks and paying thirty five dollars in fees on top of it. Right. It's like the cost is typically the same at the end of the day. It's just how it gets itemized on your receipt changes. I think of those those memes that I've seen on Instagram lately where it's like ten dollars with five dollars shipping and it's like the Drake meme and it's like nah fam and then it's like $14.99 with free shipping and it's like yeah it's just a really funny uh culture you're paying the same amount right it's just consumer psychology I love it do you have thoughts on this do you think that it's smart for restaurants to discount themselves when they're slow isn't that just happy hour question mark do you think that we will see a huge uh surge of places adopt this mentality would you would you as a customer think that when you're going out to eat based on the discount, would that kind of influence what you order or where you go out to eat? Or is it just kind of a bonus because you decide where you where you want to eat before you go to the place? Please let me know in the comments or tweet at me. I'm genuinely curious. And a lot of people like a lot of you like to go out to eat. So I'd be curious to hear consumer wise what you're thinking about. And I think whenever you attempt to kind of compete on costs, it's a race to the bottom. And someone is always willing to sell it for less than you are. And I think it's a bad way to do business personally. But as usual, this is an increasingly popular topic. And I'm really, really happy to be able to cover it here. Last up, and it could have maybe been a headline, but I wanted to have it be the main story treatment because it's such exciting news for someone like me that's been following her for a long time. Is Harris has been giving her given her own series on Eater. Yes, the mother of two and travel vlogger extraordinaire who Eater is rightfully calling a master storyteller is now the host and producer of the new Eater series, Travel, Eat, Repeat. And the real reason that I wanted to cover this is, listen, I know I cover a lot of Eater stuff. I'm also very aware that I can be intensely critical of Eater, and because a majority of their content is generated in-house, I get a little nervous when I see news like this as far as like a headline. But to quote Iz here, when she's talking about her Portugal trip, which is actually the first few episodes of this show, quote, I didn't want to change the format of my videos when it came to this Portugal trip. And then Eater says she's known for a brand of travel vlogging that's become a captivating art form. Um, and then back to Iz, she says, quote, I feel a loyalty. I felt a loyalty to my audience and wouldn't want to put something out that didn't come totally natural to me, end quote. And that's sincerely what she did. I went ahead and watched the first episode of Travel, Eat, Repeat, and I've, I've already seen her short little blip trailer video that she did on her channel about Portugal. And to me, it's really exciting to see what she produced and kind of like the freedom that she got and the overall finished product, right? Someone with a channel with 21,000 subscribers, with a really fantastic and supportive audience, and then this larger company comes along, and they've got a channel with 1.3 million subscribers, a national, global audience, and they're like, hey, do you want to publish videos on our channel? And from what I saw in the comment section of Season 1, Episode 1, it was nothing but positive, and that is incredible. So good on Eater for making sure Iz had creative control and that she could be herself. Good on Iz for seeing the uh, potential value she can bring to Eater, and also good on on her and her husband Johnny, who also produces great content through his series Borders on Vox, which is also affiliated with Eater, if anybody's ever done that kind of research. So it also seems as though it's one big happy family now. And in case you missed it, that's a pun. 
because they travel with their two small children, which to me is just insane. They're going to Switzerland and Portugal and Portland and all these places. And most of you know, I don't have kids yet, but it basically dissolves every excuse I could ever think of as to why I wouldn't upload a travel video or a this place called movie. I'm just traveling by myself, you know, so I have no excuse. And so her video style is really snappy. I sometimes wish she would get a little bit more descriptive in her breakdowns of places, but though through Eater, it seems like she's really definitely checking out the right spots. And I'm really, really excited to see where this all goes. I would love to have her on the podcast as well and maybe go out to eat with her and make a This Place Called Video where there's like an interview element of it involved and we both kind of talk about the food together. We're both kind of hipster, Sony, camera using, peak design, bag wearing, not too fancy, but still kind of fancy travelers. And I think that we would get along great. So we will just have to wait and see what happens there. Uh, last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a DM, and I do my best to answer it in a way that will help the greater good. This question comes from at, uh, well, it's just Samuel Siahan on YouTube. He says, Justin, I have a question that's been in my head for a while. I've been in culinary school for almost a year now in Germany. Um, blah, 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 blah. I couldn't afford to go into university. I didn't even cook for myself before all of this, but I noticed my passion to create food is growing day by day. I want to ask you this. Do you think talent plays more of a part than hard work itself? I really don't think I'm the most talented, talented cook, but I know I work hard. Great question because there's so many people who, I mean, everybody does it. No one comes out of the womb, uh, holding a knife like a pro and being able to fillet fish and being able to make hollandaise sauce. Like we all had to learn and we all had to come from zero, right? So I think a really important book that highlighted at least how I generated my opinion on this topic is a book called Talent is Overrated. It's a really, really insightful book into really, really high performers. So it talks about the fact that Tiger Woods yes, some argue that he's talented, but then it also, like, it takes all these high performers and gives the backstory where you're like, okay, maybe it wasn't talent that completely made their careers their careers. Maybe it was the fact that, you know, Tiger had been golfing since he was, could barely walk, right? Or these people who have had insane mentorship or they were just, you know, born at the right time so that they were able to kind of like get inducted into the hockey team a little bit sooner than their peers. And so because they had almost a year advantage by the time they got to college, they had almost a year of more training than everybody else, right? So really, really insightful book as far as like where talent falls on the spectrum as far as how you should judge someone's performance. And I guess my other question to Samuel would be, what is your ambition? Like, where does your skill level actually need to be, right? Like, if you have these goals of working at Lestrance and you want to be a sous chef there, then you kind of really need to think about where you're going to get your skills from and how you're going to generate those kinds of skills. If you have a desire to um, open up a poke spot in Maui, there's no reason for you to kind of do that. So, um, but at the same token, you still need to work hard, right? So when, when, you, when you're asking about talent, you're usually asking about a certain skill level, right? And so to think that you need to go work at a three Michelin star restaurant to open a sandwich shop in Portland, I don't necessarily think that that is the key. So my, my sentence, and I'm going to dissect this, is hard work applied in the right environment with an open mind consistently will lead to the best results. And so you really need to break those down for yourself. So hard work, right environment, open mind, and consistency. Because, you know, you could go work at French Laundry and not have the most open mind and be completely closed off to all your principles that you learned in Germany. That experience isn't going to, you know, move your skill needle in any direction, right? 
And if you know, you're in the right environment, you have an open mind, you're consistent, you always show up every day, but you're lazy and you don't work hard, that's also not going to work. Right. And maybe you're, you're, you, the hard work is there. The environment is there. You're open-minded, but you only go for three days and then you never come back. Right. Like that's also not going to give you the best results. So it has to be kind of like all of these combined shaken into the perfect cocktail with your own kind of personality involved that will give you the best results. So again, back to that talent is overrated book. Some of it just comes down to being at the right place at the right time. Um, some people got really invested in modernist cooking and they really thought that it was going to be the thing that led the industry forward. And then all of a sudden it really fizzled out. So like you could be really quote unquote talented in creating modernist cuisine, but if it doesn't have any sort of practical application or nobody wants to come buy your food, then it doesn't necessarily provide any dividends on that investment, you know? So the last thing that I would leave you with, and this is going to be something that you're going to um, hopefully grow on with um, your culinary school, is networking. And with everybody that has talent, there's always some sort of networking element that leads them to the opportunities that they have. So I know it kind of feels like you don't have much of a network because maybe you're starting at zero. But, you know, I mean, if you come out next year with one more relationship than you had this year... And then just compound it, right? Like the next year you get two and then you do three. Like in 10 years, you're going to have a reasonably uh, high quality network that you can then leverage to get the opportunities that you want. And to me, as as much as all these other things that I, that all these other qualities that I spoke about, if you have more of that, that is way better than talent because we've all, and, and you probably haven't worked with someone like this yet, but we've all, I'm sure, worked with people who are insanely quote unquote talented, but they suck to work with. And that's never, that's never something that, uh, any of us want to, want to deal with. So I would always, I would always, um, push you to pursue your skills, but not at the expense of, of, you know, being a dickhead. Um, so hopefully if you enjoyed that, if you want to go deeper, discuss any of your ambitions, if you think that my experience can help you achieve any of your goals, if you're struggling with discipline and you want to set up weekly or monthly check-ins, I'm super happy to discuss that type of a relationship. And after having a lot of success with the mentor tier on Patreon, I would love to find a way to offer like a three-month sort of program where it's like flat rate, you get a certain number of coaching hours with me, and you can really like hone in and lead up to culinary school or graduation or transitioning from one restaurant to another because I found the best coaching calls and relationships come from that longer-lasting conversation back and forth. So I've never pitched the coaching as a magic pill, but I think having so Someone like me keeping you accountable is super underrated. And if there's any way that you think us working together would help you progress or improve, you can find more details about that on justinconda.com slash coaching. If you ever want to discuss a longer term relationship, please send me an email. It's available right on my site. Just click that contact button. Oh man, in our non-industry story, I've got so many. I don't think any of them bear a deep dive. There's a new Spider-Man trailer that came out. Yes, please. There's a new Sony vlogging camera, the A6400. I'm contemplating upgrading, but that would require me to change up my whole vlogging setup, so I don't know if I want to do that. There's new Nike Adapt self-lacing sneakers at just $350. They're 100% going to make ones for running and weightlifting, which I'm totally psyched to see happen. I will probably cop them there. Uh, Aero Mexico did a great ad where they literally took a bunch of I'm not going to call them racist, but they people that probably don't appreciate immigrants, and they did a genetics uh, ancestry test on them, and then they gave them discounts on flights, depending on how much percentage of Mexican heritage they had. So if you're like 13% Mexican, you could get 13% off a flight, and it is so worth the watch. It's hilarious. So I've got all of that linked up down below, because don't we all need a break from the industry every once in a while? I think we do. 
So that's going to do it for episode this episode of the podcast, episode 88 specifically. The number eight is my favorite number, so maybe I selfishly made that a factor in making this a solo episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. I've got a bunch of amazing plans coming up for travel and such. I want to coordinate a meetup in LA to get tacos for everybody that wants to come out, uh, so stay tuned for that. I've got a couple new videos this week. I'm going to do a Chef Knife Bonanza 2.0 video because that one did so well, and I'm kind of drowning in knives that brands have sent over, and I want to give you folks a chance to upgrade your setup, so stay tuned for that. There's also a post on YouTube where you can ask questions because I'm going to shoot an AMA style video this week with all the questions that you folks left there. Just, yeah, lots of exciting stuff happening. So I hope you're, you if you remembered the fact that this episode had a new intro, that also means, yep, you guessed it, you get a new outro. So let's roll it. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.